I'm going to begin this morning by reviewing just a little bit of basics here. We could think about this as um, Psalm Studies Catechism. Real basics about Psalms, particularly I think about Psalms of Lament. Uh, Psalms of Lament, as you know, do exactly what the name sounds like. They complain. People are so struck by this point that the biggest book in the Bible is full of complaints that are godly from holy men. They are inspired by the Spirit of God. God is not upset by us complaining in faith and lamenting before Him. So typically, the Psalms of Lament are peppered with all kinds of complaints and laments that are loud and graphic and dramatic and spelled out in detail. Typically, Psalms of Lament uh, also have prayer requests scattered out, affirmations of faith, but as a general rule, as you survey and examine and dig deep into these individual Psalms of Lament, what you will find is there tends to be a single gripping prayer request that seems to be the central concern and need of the psalmist in a situation of trouble. And then the third characteristic of Psalms of Lament is they can be either individual or communal. They can have the voice of uh, a single person crying out to God, Hear me, my prayer, listen to me, my God. Or, or it could be the sound of the community speaking as the people of God in unison cry out, Save us, O God. Now, Psalm 86 is very clear to us, having read it, is an individual psalm of lament. And certainly it is individual because as you can see here from the opening verses, I, my soul, I am a godly man. Be gracious to me. Make glad the soul of your servant. Verse 11. Individual. It's a lament, obviously, just the first few verses. Um, you couldn't you couldn't not stub your toe over it. It's very clear. It's a psalm of lament. I'm afflicted. I am needy. Um, be gracious to me, O Lord. Uh, give me joy. Give here to my prayer and the voice of my supplications. Very specific sort of, well, I'd say those are sort of general prayers, but they give us the very clear indication that something's wrong. But as I noted, uh, they typically have a prayer within them that is specific. And that prayer which is specific is tailored to the situation. So, so we know there's a problem here. We have all kinds of indications of sorrow and lamentation and complaint. But you know what? We really don't get to the bottom of, uh, of the problem facing the psalmist until you get to verse 14, for instance. Oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before them. See, David is overwhelmed, not just by problems which are generic. We've seen sort of poetic, generic descriptions of trouble and distress. But it's very specific, uh, the problem which faces him. Violent, arrogant, godless men are seeking to kill him. Now, we have no idea when this particular prayer was uttered. It was uttered by David because the title says so. So we don't know whether this prayer was uttered while he was running from Saul. We don't know whether this prayer was uttered when he was um, running from Absalom, while he was exiled from Jerusalem. We don't know whether this was a prayer of his during battle. And that's what's interesting about Psalms of Lament. They give you enough specifics to know this is the problem 
while remaining general enough so its application is wide. That's why we love Psalms of Lament. Because the way they speak of distress makes it so accessible to us. In fact, some of you can say, I had that problem last week. I might have that problem in my life today. You see, Psalms of Lament are designed to to teach us how to feel and to think about our troubles in life. As, As Calvin said, the Psalter is an anatomy of all parts of the soul, and God has placed him in the Bible to teach us how to feel. So there's a particular problem, it's in verse 14, and in response to that particular problem, David has a particular prayer. And I would say that this is the literary and theological heart of the psalm. It's in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. You see, David has a specific prayer request to match his particular problem. The whole psalm seems to be built around this gripping prayer. And I want us to think about this prayer. The main point that emerges from this particular prayer within the context of the rest of the prayers and the complaints and the other things that, that we learn about here is that it's God's character that gives us confidence to, to pray, to persevere in perilous times. It's, it's God's character which gives us confidence to pray, to persevere spiritually in perilous times. We're going to take three different points to unfold that. We're going to have the peril, the prayer, and the confidence. And, and I want to begin with the peril, okay? Because that really sets us up to, to grasp the force of the prayer and to begin to internalize it, lay hands on it, and make it our own prayer too. But, but you see, there, there's a great peril, and that peril is twofold. It's, it's David's enemies... And David's own weakness. David's enemies and David's own weakness. And so we can see the enemies in verse 13, and they have three diabolical qualities. Three diabolical qualities. We read verse 14, Arrogant men have risen up against me, a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before them. So the very first diabolical quality is arrogance. Arrogance. And the heart of arrogance is a sense of autonomy and moral superiority, haughtiness, insolent, being self-willed. The kind of person that thinks that they're here to light up the world for everyone else. Arrogance. It does not view self as uh, as created, as creature, but it views self as having sort of divine-like qualities, and therefore anybody who would waste their time on religious or spiritual matters is a weakling and a dope, and deserves to be mocked and ridiculed. Because they don't have room for that in their life. They're strong. The other thing is violent here. And it means uh, ruthless and cruel, and implies forcefulness. So the violent um, have an air of dominance about them. They get their way by the exercise of their muscle. They are dominant, loud, obnoxious, bloodthirsty people. And they band together. Notice here, it's not just one... It's a band. It seems as if they are forged in league and covenant to work evil. This is all part of that great satanic uh, strategy and conspiracy, isn't it? About Psalm 2 unfolds and speaks about the, the kings of the earth banding together against the Lord and His Christ and His anointed. There is an entire kingdom of darkness which is arrayed against 
the church and the people of God, and they are in sync with one another in terms of their aspirations and their character. But the other thing here it says about these is they seek his life. And that word seek suggests calculation, not just intent, but calculation. There's shrewdness about it. There's cleverness. There's a willfulness and there's a determination about it. It's a firm resolve to seek and to ruin. That's the other thing about that. To seek a life is to seek destruction. It is to seek ruin. It is to seek to damage and destroy that which is good. Finally, they are godless and it couldn't be, their, their, their atheism couldn't be stated in any more clear terms than this. Because uh, the last clause in verse 14 says, they have not set God before them. You see, what you set before you, what is before your eyes, what captivates your heart and your thinking and your will and your intellect is your God. And what don't they set before them? They do not set before them the Lord. It's intentional. It's a willful act. They don't live for the glory of God. They don't live to serve Jesus Christ. They live to worship and serve themselves. And this characteristic, this atheism, describes the rest of their character, their arrogance, their lack of being restrained by the law of God. It explains their bloodthirstiness and their cruelty and their use of force to be oppressors and to harm and to wreak havoc and to destroy. And so this is the epitome of pride, which is to be somebody who chooses to live without setting God before them. This is the overwhelming circumstance, first of all, that is before David here in our psalm, is that violent, arrogant, godless men willfully, cruelly, and intentionally seek his life. But that's not all of David's peril. David's peril is also connected to himself. And you see that uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David initiates this psalm of lament by speaking of his own weakness. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. You see, the psalm is initiated by an expression of personal weakness. This is not an expression of self-confidence or self-assertion. This is the way that David identifies with the lowest and weakest kind of person. You see, these are social terms under the Old Testament. The afflicted and the needy were people who were completely um, sealed out or walled off from the establishment with all of its resources and abilities to stay in life. It was the widow. It was the orphan. It was the, the grossly and deeply impoverished. Those are social terms. And yet in the Psalter, they are taken up repeatedly as a metaphor of a spiritual condition. They are taken up as the image, really, of the person who has no spiritual and moral resources within themselves. And so what David is doing is he's taking a well-worn image and he's applying it to himself and he is identifying himself before God. I am nothing but an afflicted and needy person. You see, as he takes inventory of the violence and the arrogance and, and the atheism of his enemies, it doesn't cause him to feel like he's a strong man who's going to take on the world with a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. It does just the opposite. 
makes him feel weak. Makes him feel like he's no match for his problems. Now let me just give you a quote from John Calvin right here that you can chew on. Calvin says, The despair therefore may not overwhelm our minds under our greatest afflictions. Let us support ourselves from the consideration that the Holy Spirit has dictated this prayer for the poor and the afflicted. You see, Calvin says, this is what David knew, it's hard to be confident to pray when you're suffering. It is hard to be confident to pray when your enemies and your life circumstances and your trials are so overwhelming. All they do is make you sense and feel your own pitifulness and weakness before them. And he says, the concern may be that because of my own weakness, what I'll do is just sulk. I'll just be overwhelmed with the despair. That's the reason why the Holy Spirit has done this psalm is that David will teach us that this is precisely the time for us to exercise our faith in prayer. To remind us this morning that it is, as Psalm 113 says, that it's the poor that he raises from the dust heap, and it's the needy that he lists from the ash heap. It is the same thing that Jesus Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And yet this is the hard part of this. This is the hard part of weakness, right? Because what would you choose if you had to? What would you choose this morning if you had to, as you stood before your trial and your difficulties in life? What would you choose for yourself? Would you choose to be somebody who's, who's weak or somebody who's personally powerful? Think about that before you answer it. We live in a culture of self-assertion. We live in a culture of people who think through self-determination and hard work, they can fix anything in their life. With just enough entrepreneurs and smart people that all of us can somehow overcome the problems of this life. This is one of the difficulties of apprehending the Psalter sometimes, although we can identify very readily with the things that are described here because of the power of the imagery and the poetry. The sin in our heart blocks that. It takes a while for us to get beat down in the midst of our struggles to come before God like David does and says, I'm going to say right now, there's nothing in me. I'm just afflicted and needy. David's prayer this morning gives you confidence to do that for yourself. In fact, he says, that's the only way out. It's not self-assertion, it's self-denial. We can pick through the, the rest of these Indications of his own weakness rather quickly. Verse 3, crying for grace. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I cry all day long. It's in the self-description which fits perfectly with verse 1. The constant crying all day long reinforces the sense of weakness and desperation. David has gone all in on his identity as the weak and the poor. I'm just going to cry all day long. Saddened soul, verse 4. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David is saying that his soul is sorrowful, it's joyless, and he's dispirited. And yet, what does he do? He comes before God, and he says, you're the only one that can replace my sorrow with joy. 
And that reminds us, as much as the Bible tells us to endure our afflictions with joy, you can't do it. You're commanded to do it, yes. How many of us would like to sign up for that list? I just love nothing more than thinking about rejoice always in your tribulations. My mind tells me why I'm supposed to, because I know that God is working out in my life an eternal weight of glory. I know that. But I don't like that Bible verse. There are times when I think of that Bible verse and I think, why in the world? I can't do that. David's acknowledging he can't do that. And this is the part of the Christian life that causes us to really negotiate and think through it wisely and faithfully. We know it's our command, it's our duty, but David says, this is how I do it. You come before God, you identify yourself in your weakness, and you say, God, make me rejoice. I need this help from you. It's a fruit that flows from the Spirit of God. I need you to give what you command. The last image of his own weakness is his condition. In verse 16, he says, Turn me and be gracious to me. Grant me your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. He identifies himself as a servant, an evid, which means a bond slave, somebody owned by somebody else. And then he doubles down on the image by saying that his mama was a handmaid, which means she was somebody's piece of property. She was just one of the household ladies who got pregnant and had him. Doesn't sound like some sort of glamorous pedigree, does it? What is it? It's an expression of total subservience. Posturing as a slave and the, and the son of a slave doesn't put you uh, within the circle of this world's elite. What it does is it places you within the circle of the lowest ring of society. It is a total expression of subservience. It's saying, I am coming under you as my master and Lord. That's all of us this morning. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are this. Because Christ is Lord, having redeemed and purchased us body and soul from sin and from all the power of the devil be his own. You aren't your own. And so what David describes here about his weakness is how you are to think of your own. So David describes his peril. He is um, being pursued by the vilest of men while he is the weakest of men. That circumstance now is important that Awareness of peril is really important to set up for the prayer. Because um, this prayer, as I've said in verse 11, is really the, the, the central theological heart um, of Psalm 86. Yes, there's lots of prayers here. But I think that what David does is he refines, the more he goes through this prayer, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he refines his praying and his crying. And now as you come to verse 11, here's we have this arrow that has a, a razor sharp edge to it. He is now precisely aware of the particular strength that he needs from the Lord. And by the way, this is important for us because this is teaching us the thing that we need as we endure our own season of struggle. Let's look at the elements here. And the first element of 
this prayer is illumination. Verse 10, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. David pleads for instruction the way of the Lord so that he will what? Walk. In other words, he'll persevere in Christ. And the key here is the way. And the way is just a metaphor for the upright path. It's shorthand for the moral principles of the law. And by the way, this contrasts very sharply, doesn't it, with the aggressors, the, the people who are against him. They are violent and they are aggressive. They're seeking his life, but they're also atheists. They're autonomous. They don't set God or his law before him. And David says, this is the first thing that I'm aware of that I need. The way we set God before us is to look to his word. And the thing that provokes him and, and prompts him to go to this word is what characterizes. He says, it's truth. Your truth, he cries out, to walk in. And, and the thing about this word is it means firmness, reliability, constancy, concreteness. Well... What does a, a great pain and trial do in your life that make you feel vulnerable? You see, a, a trial makes you disoriented. It makes you feel unstable. And this is where we sometimes go wrong in our trials. Instead of, in the midst of trials, feeling that sense of vulnerability and weakness and instability, instead of running to the law of God like David does to find that which is a granite-like foundation to stand upon, we seek that firmness in something else. But, but David shows us here, that's not the way of the weak. The way of the weak, the person that identifies as needy and afflicted as somebody who in the midst of this trial, knowing their instability and weakness and needing something that's firm and granite-like to stand upon and, and think upon, to rest upon and, and to live upon, he goes to God and he says, teach me your way. He prays that God would illuminate his path. You see, the sufferings were a time for him to begin to understand the word better. And that's striking. Because as we read the Psalms that we know David wrote, how many times do we learn about the fact that he's been taught? He's been taught from his youth. He's had many instructors. Uh, he consults the, the law of God. It's his delight all the time. Remember, this is the guy that wakes up at 2 in the morning and, and starts thinking about the law of God. Meditating upon it, what? Day and night. It's not as if he's a novice in the word or ignorant of the word. No, what David is saying here in the midst of this trouble, he says, I haven't learned enough of the word. What I need is illumination. I need to be taught. I need to understand. I have a deficiency in my understanding of the application of the word of God to life. And so he knows that if he is to master the law of God and to feel its grasp upon his soul, he needs God to teach him. He didn't ask for new revelation. He said, bring forth new light from old truth. This is one of the things that's so important for the Christian life. This prayer teaches us the way to grow deeper is to grow down into the Word. We don't need to chase more ideas. We need to grasp hold of the ones we have. 
I have often said this and I repeat it again. If Scripture, Calvin's Institutes, and the Westminster Standards is the only thing that you have to read for the rest of your life, you will never exhaust what you know, ever. You will never be at a point where you say, I wish I had more books on my shelf to read. Because you could never even begin to come close to this. David is saying the same thing. I don't need new truth. I don't need new teachers. I don't need to convene a a school of scholars. What I need is for you to take this word, Heavenly Father, and open my eyes to it so I can behold wonderful things and new things from the same old things that I know. This is how we deal with trouble. This is how we deal with trouble. We say, God, open up your word to my eyes. The other thing that he does here, the second element of his prayer is it's important too as he prays for devotion. And it is uh, quite a striking prayer request in the latter part of verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. It means to join something together that is in, in separate pieces. Think of that. The heart, which is the control center of the human person. It's, it's, uh, it's the seat of the intellect. It is the, the seat of the will. This is the thing that David says is in parts. And, and it needs to be united together by the power of the Spirit of God so that he will fear the Lord. And that's a striking phrase all to itself because as we know from the study of the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning point of the living of the Christian life. There's no hope without it. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no subservience, there is no teachability, there is no willingness to receive. And the people who don't have the fear of the Lord before their eyes are the people who are haughty and arrogant and proud and who are above instruction and are scornful people. David says, unite my heart so that I will what? I will fear God. You see, he understands what he needs. He understands he doesn't have it. David is praying to be faithful and trustworthy, and he needs more of this work of God. Matthew Henry unfolds why David may have prayed this way. He says, Our hearts are apt to wander and hang loose. Their powers and faculties wander after a thousand foreign things. Therefore, we have need of God's grace to unite them, that we may serve God with all that is within us. We need this prayer because our hearts are not united. They're not to be divided, but because of sin and because of our struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are not united. David recognizes this. David recognizes that his real problem isn't what's out there. David recognizes that the real distress and peril which he faces is in here. And so he cries out to the Lord for an undivided heart that he will learn to fear the Lord. This is really the summary, I guess you'd say, of of what he seeks. There's other things that we can look to now, but, but this is quite an instructive prayer. This is a prayer of somebody who's take time to really think through his problems. I remind us again, this teaches us that David realized his real 
problem wasn't the the arrogant and the violent and the life-seeking atheistic enemy. The real problem was in his heart. And this is a mature believer saying this. And so it means it instructs every single one of us here this morning. This isn't the kind of prayer we say, this is a good one for the young people to pray. This is a prayer for all of us to pray. Teach me your way that I will walk in them. Unite my heart that I may fear you. Our biggest problem is we don't fear the Lord as we ought. And so David prays for what is most essential in his peril, and he does so with fervency. I'm going to drag some threads from other prayer requests because I think they inform just exactly this prayer. Just, uh, leading up to it, or the really qualities of this one prayer here, I guess you could say. But, but look at verse 1. I mean, incline your ear and answer me. Um, it means to, like, to take something, to stretch it out on a rack. And yet that's what he's saying to God. Stretch your ear to me. Incline your ear to me. It is uh, the language of the most intense kind of urgency and fervency. Incline an answer. Because I'm afflicted and needy. See, the condition that follows immediately after the request reinforces the intensity of the fervency. And then again, verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to my prayer. It means to respond, to pay attention. And the very thing that characterizes his prayers is supplications. And guess what supplications mean? It means they are pleas for mercy. So it's the nature of the need which fires his prayers. I'm in desperate need of mercy. And that mercy we've just seen is this mercy of God teaching him and God uniting his heart to fear him. One commentator nails the intensity of these verbs and he says this, There is a sense of desperation in the psalmist's voice as he implores the Lord to help him. He begs the Lord to listen, to respond mercifully to his cry. That idea of desperation and imploring is key. Why does David pray these things? That brings us to the aim of this prayer. And the aim of this prayer is located in verse 16. There's other places we could go, but but just look at verse uh, 16. I think this summarizes quite well the, the aim of the prayer. And the aim of the prayer is to uh, be gracious to me. Grant your strength to your servant. You see that word strength is the ability to exert force. Remember, he's weak, he's needy, he's afflicted. And he says, I need to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might because I'm just the son of a handmaid. See, this is the way to prayer. The aim of these prayers is to build ourselves up in the strength of the Lord and not the strength of ourselves. His enemies were arrogant, violent, ruthless, and godless. He was weak. He sensed all that he needed came from the Lord. And so what does he do? He seeks that. He aims at it in his prayer. Grant it, Heavenly Father. Grant your strength to me. But there's one other element here in our prayer that that we can't finish uh, off our exposition until we notice it, and that's the purpose of it all. And and it's interesting, uh, the purpose of this prayer is different from the aim. The aim is what's needed immediately for himself. 
while he endures his particular situation. But there's something greater in David's mind than his need for strength from on high to endure his situation. It's that at the end of it, there's something that he he intends to do. And I want you to notice uh, how this immediately follows in our text. The linkage here shows us how David is thinking. So you have the prayer request in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, I'll walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God. With all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. See, the purpose of the prayer is worship. The purpose of being uh, seeking God for this strength is so that he will yet live and worship the Lord. His greater goal in life is not his own personal safety. His biggest concern is not his enemy's own weakness. The overriding concern and burden of his heart is that he might worship the Lord, which is his calling, and everyone's calling who's been created and redeemed by Christ. You see, the purpose is to praise the Lord. And the basis of that worship is the glory of God for your loving kindness towards me is great. And then he gives us a little hint of his confidence that prayer will be answered. It's a, it's a tense in the Hebrew that is used to indicate that the, the prayer has been answered even though it hasn't yet, but just the way it expresses the confidence. It says, you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You see, what fuels this worship of God is, is the greatness of God's character. But it's the mercy of God poured out upon him. You delivered me from the depths of Sheol. See, the fuel of worship is the acknowledgement and the awareness that we live by Christ's mercies. You can develop and cultivate the most rigid, regular principle you want from Scripture. And we ought to. But, but the, the thing that fuels my worship is not the letter of the law. The thing that fuels my worship is being captivated by Christ who is before me because of what He has done. He has delivered us from Sheol. But there's something in here for us, for our trials. This is the way that sometimes our trials feel. Who hasn't felt this way in the midst of their, of their struggles? That, that their trials are, are, are consuming them and trapping them like a, like a coffin in the grave. David says that that's the experience of your trouble. There's something to set your thoughts upon beyond your suffering. It's the end. The purpose which is the worship of the Lord. He had a heart that was determined to worship the Lord, and he gives um, evidence of that in the way he prays in terms of not just its aim, but its purpose. A heart of worship cultivated through reflecting upon divine mercies. Before we move on to our next point, our last one, I just want to pause here for instruction. I want to grab hold of just a little portion. There's many uh, threads and strands that we we could look upon. But the thing that I, I seize upon is David's awareness of his need to pray for perseverance. I think that's something that's very important for us to think about just for a moment here, is David's awareness of his need to pray for perseverance. We've seen the testimony and the record of his, of his situation, of, 
of his enemies. We've seen the, the testimony and awareness of his weakness. And it's quite instructive that David prays as he does in this particular circumstance. Remember, we said that laments have particular problems and they tend to have very particular specific prayer requests at some point. And what seems to me that David becomes aware of in the midst of his trouble is that he needs to make sure that he is persevering spiritually. That's the heart of this prayer. Teach me your way that I will walk. Unite my heart to fear your name. It implies here that David has um, become sensible and aware of spiritually the prospect that the trial and the sufferings and the difficulty could lead him away. Why? Because this is Satan's handiwork. You see, there's always two opponents in every problem. There's your own fears, and there's satanic opposition. And Satan works overtime against us in time of trouble so that we'll be like the aggressive pursuers to not set God before us. You see, our greatest problem in our, in our situation is not the personal peril we're in. Our greatest problem in our personal circumstances is the fear of falling away and being unfaithful to Christ. You say, well, how could somebody be like that? How, how could somebody be like David's persecutors? How could they do that if they say they trust the Lord? And the answer is because they become bitter. Because they become bitter, they don't cry out. And because they don't cry out, it leads to a bottomless pit of spiritual trouble. Or, we become distracted by false gods and seek help from somewhere else. And that's our great danger. Our great danger is failing to seek to persevere in the strength of Jesus Christ. And so what David is teaching us here by the way he responds to this is to have the greatest concern for his perseverance spiritually. I know it's hard to deal with this. How many times do you wish that something be taken out of your life and you look all around you to say, there's got to be help somewhere in something? So we get on the internet and we search, talk to people, we strategize, we think. It gets so easy at some point within our attempt to just get this massive load off of our shoulders that before long we haven't noticed it. We have lost the battle because we decided to focus on ourselves and to not set Christ before us. It's a great warning as much as there's great instruction here that these are times to make sure we do as David did to realize our greatest concern is that we seek to persevere spiritually in Christ and in the Lord and in His truth with a united heart to, to fear Him. Well, that's the prayer that brings us now to the confidence. And our time is uh, quickly going away. I, I want to show you uh, something interesting in our text here, which is the confidence. And it, it is inseparably connected to the praying. I wonder if you caught this. 
Um, you, you could start even with verse 6. Um, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. And then in verse 7, there's a, it's a very strong determination expressed here. In the day of trouble, I shall call upon you. That's a very powerful verb form there. It's, it's, it's expressing this, um, this prior commitment, this deep um, sense of, of devotion to God, to determine to do something, that's to cry out in the midst of the sufferings. And I want you to notice that conjunction for, for you will answer me. See, the determination is grounded in confidence, isn't it? The determination to pray, and this is really important about this, the determination to pray is this deep confidence, you will answer me. See, what David is persuaded of is that he's praying to a God who answers prayer. The reason he will pray, the reason he determines to pray, is because he knows God answers. I have been reading some things lately that really irritate me, but I had to for some coursework I'm doing. There's often this idea that um, these are just spiritual things, right? Whether they're connected to Christ or truth or anything, there's a whole lot of people out there who, who like to speak of spirituality and centering and meditation and prayer rituals because they say, you know, there's, there's some good in it, right? After all, we may live in a mechanical material universe, but, but you know, there feels like there's something mysterious, right? There's got to be something to a little of this religious stuff. Whether they believe anything about God, whether they believe there's a personal God, whether they, they believe such thing as, as absolute truth, that none of that really matters. These are sort of exercises that you do. That's not David. He's not into false praying. He didn't learn this as a, as a, as a meditative exercise on some spiritual retreat. Breathe in and breathe out, you know. No, no, no. David says, I'm praying for you are a God who answers prayer. So what we're interested in now is, what kind of God does David believe in that answers prayer? This is the foundation of your confidence in praying boldly, okay? Then just answer, but what kind of God is this who answers? And the two things David spotlights here are found in verse 8 and verse 10. The character or the being of God and the works of God. So no sooner does he make this very strong affirmation in verse 7 that he's confident God will answer him. But look at verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. The very first thing that he moves to to highlight and spotlight here is the uniqueness of God. And and don't fall into the trap of of reading some of these evangelical commentators and say, well, this just proves that that David was aware of other gods, but, but God is at the top of them all. Garbage. How stupid could somebody be to say that? The point of it is to not say, well, God, you're up here and the rest are down here. No, the point of it is to say, He is unique. He alone is God. That's the point. He prays to the God, who is the maker of the heaven and the earth. There is no one like you. He alone is God. Technology isn't God. Money isn't God. Government isn't God. Education isn't God. The internet isn't God. 
Because he alone is God, he praised him. He unfolds his attributes in verse 15. This God who is unique and alone, look at those attributes in verse 15. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. I'm not going to go through all of them, but, but guess what? People of God, he is quoting scripture. He is quoting, quoting Exodus 34, 6, which is God's self-revelation to Moses. When he brought Moses out and he put him in the rock and he passed by him, he said, I proclaim my name to you. But the thing that is so gripping about this scripture citation is the context in which it was given. God revealed himself as a God of mercy and grace and long-sufferingness and kindness and truth to a people who had created, who had just engaged in gross immorality and sin and idolatry. He revealed himself as a merciful God. David here in the midst of his sufferings and sorrows does what? He reaches for the word to testify to him about who his God is we praise to. The enemies don't set God before them. The first thing David does is reach for the scriptures and he sets the scriptures before them and what he sees is Christ. Mercy. Grace. Loving kindness. Graciousness, abundance. These are all the things that he remembers and he cries out to. and This is the ground of his confidence as he prays. What could be a greater ground of confidence in your afflictions than this? You see, sometimes the problems in our life are due to us. Sometimes the problem in our life are due to our sin. God's not punishing us. God's afflicting us. As a good heavenly father, he is chastening us. He's seeking to send enough misery and trouble into our life so that we'll turn away from sin. But what are you going to do when you become aware that the problem in your life is because of you? You do what David did. You reach for your Bible. And you find John 3.16 of the Old Testament, which is Exodus 34.6. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You reach for the mercy of God. That mercy of God was what persuaded Him that God answers His prayers. Tuck that away the next time you have some trouble. The other thing He spotlights here is God's works. Look at verse 8. There's no God, there's no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And then you come to verse 10, for you are great and you do wondrous works and you alone are God. So the works now are the spotlight. Just notice how the, um, that the works of God are sandwiched in between the character of God in verse 10. You have reverence to God is great, and then God does wondrous deeds as a work, and at the end you alone are God, God's being again, right? So what's tucked in there is the thing that God does are God-like things, and they are what? Wonders. Well, you know what that word means? Wonders means something that is so mysterious and marvelous and so, and so spectacular that you can't help but acknowledge it as, um, as divine. It's something that just couldn't be unless God did it. And one of the great examples of that is uh, Exodus 15.11 says that, that God... Um, is uh, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, is doing wonders. Well, what are the wonders in view? 
This is right after the Red Sea crossing. And Moses says he leads the people of God in praise to the Lord. Speaks about God as the one who works wonders. What if you had saw, been there to see those waters of the sea rise up in a heap? What if you were crossing across on dry land and you see the fish swimming right next to you in the water? What if you stepped on the other side and watched all the Egyptian armies die with the crashing of the folds of the walls of water upon them? You would say it was a wonder. You would say it was something only God could do. That's the kind of thing that David reaches for to explain the ground of his confidence in praying to God. He does wonders. He's in the place where he's able to answer our prayers when we cry out and say, I'm pitiful. My problems are uh, far greater than me. I'm no match for them, Lord. I've made ruin of my life. I've done and said stupid things. I'm receiving the outpouring of your afflictions. Or maybe I've just got problems in my life that I can't connect to anything that I know of, but you're giving me trouble and hardship that is so enormous and so overwhelming, I can barely even breathe. What do you do? How do you face it? Who do you call? David said, I've made a determination. I set my heart upon it to cry out to you because you answer. What you're to do this morning, people of God, is take David's confidence and make it yours. You're to take David's confidence and make it yours. And you fix the eyes of faith upon these things. God's character and God's works. That was David's confidence. It wasn't in himself. It was in Christ. And so as we seize upon this instruction, as we learn this ground of confidence, may it be to us the thing that persuades us in the midst of our peril to persevere through prayer by trusting in this God whom David cries out to, a God of great character and a God who does wonders.